0: Welcome to the Habits and Hustle Podcast, a podcast that uncovers the rituals, unspoken habits, and mindsets of extraordinary people. A podcast powered by Habit Nest. Now, here is your
1: host, Jennifer Cohen. I have to tell you, I am a, I'm a mass, like a huge fan of yours. So, oh, thank you. I, I really, I love all of your books, and that's why, like, I was putting together all these questions, and I was like, oh my gosh, there is no way. That I can fit all of this stuff into one podcast because between the Happiness Project, Your Four Tendencies, you know, Better Than Before, I mean, like each one of those deserves its own like big time like, big time frame.
2: Oh, you're so nice. No, Thank it's you.
1: it's absolutely true. So that's why it's like a, a big, big uh, and also the other book, the about the clutter because mm. it's like now basically I'm that I'm living that person right now because everything is a whole large mess of questions from a little bit from here a little bit there so um, needless to say I'm very happy to have you on the podcast today. Oh
2: wonderful. yes
1: yeah, so uh, thank you for for coming over here and are you do you consider yourself you, you basically are a human nature habits happiness expert right who who yeah. basically, was a lawyer, you went to Yale, and then you pursued your passion to become a writer, and things obviously worked out very well for you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, they did. That was a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Uh,
1: So I guess my first question um, is, what is the importance of habits for happiness overall?
2: Well, you know, habits are the invisible architecture of everyday life. And if we have habits that work for us, we're a lot more likely to be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. And research shows that um, at least 40%, maybe more, of everyday life is made up of habits. And so they play a big role. Now, I will say that one of the things that I learned in writing my book better than before is that like, while I love habits and welcome habits, and I'm always trying to like make other new things into habits because I find them so freeing. Um, Some people don't like habits and that's fine too. Some people really do prefer to be more spontaneous and not have things locked in in the same way and kind of do what they want to do. And they need to find their own way to create those good behaviors. Um, But uh, you know, habits can really free us from having to use self-control or use willpower and decision fatigue. Um, So they really are a very useful tool if you're trying to make your life happier.
1: I mean, I think so. I mean, given the name of the podcast, Habits and Hustle, right? I feel that sometimes the more things you put on autopilot, it eliminates that, it gives you that extra time to focus on things that are more meaningful or can kind of like progress your life a little bit further, right? Um, I 100%
2: agree, but, you know, I did my four tendencies personality framework where I divided people into four tendencies. And what I found is like one of the tendencies, the rebel tendency, they just don't have, they often don't have as the positive association with habits, they don't think of them as being freeing, um, in the same way. And so I used to be much more like confident and saying like habits are great. And I'm like, now I'm much more like habits are great if you like habits, but even if you don't like habits, you can still find a way to exercise. You can still find a way to write a novel in your free time. You may not, you may think about it, you may set it up in a slightly different way. Um, habits are not a universal tool, but they're very, very powerful and common tool.
1: I think that's, I, mean, I want to get into the four tendencies because I think it was, it's actually very interesting because I do feel, because you put like, you, it's four archetypes, right? And yeah. I think what, with, with me, i, I it say when I took your quiz, I and mean, then everyone should take this quiz. Uh, it said I was, a, I was the obl- an obliger type, but I never mm-hmm. saw myself as that. I felt mm-hmm. like I was more like a rebel type and there are ways you, you morph them together. But just to say, and I, I want to talk to you about that, but What you were saying about habits and how sometimes people, like you said, like maybe a rebel in the four tendencies wouldn't feel that habits are a way to kind of like make their life happier. And I had a guy on my podcast yesterday, actually, who's extremely successful. Um, His name is Jesse Itzler. And um, he was actually talking about how habits for him could get you into a rut and how you don't really sometimes are able to change because you become so fixated in what you do day to day in a routine. So it's interesting. Like I'm I'm with you. Like I used to feel like you have to have a very structured day to have success. But I mean, you talk this in almost all of your books, it's about knowing who you are and knowing yourself. Right. 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 And, And it's, and it's very important because if you're not that type of personality, it could be very hindering. Right.
2: Yeah. Right. I think the problem comes is when is when we think, well, there's a right way. There's a best way. If I can't do it that way, there must be something wrong with me. I don't have any self-control. I have no willpower. I'm not a real grown up. I don't have any self-esteem. I can't take time for myself. What does this mean? Or, you know, so I kind of blame myself or just the opposite. I say, well, what's wrong with you if I can do it and you can't? Well, you lack self-control. You lack willpower. You can't keep your promises to yourself. You need to change. And what I found is like, there's a lot of ways to achieve our aims. And like, we all might want to achieve a goal, like exercising or like, you know, being productive creatively or something. There's a lot of ways to get there. And so it's more useful to think about like, well, what works for me? What appeals to me? When do I succeed? And if if I'm not succeeding, what are some other things I could try rather than saying, I need to jam myself into someone else's mold because if it works for them, then obviously it should work for me. It's just like getting up early you know, research shows there are some people are morning people and some people are night people. It's largely genetically determined and a function of age. And so the idea that somebody would say confidently, if something's important to you, you should get up and do it first thing, you know, before work every day. It's like, well, that's great advice for me because I'm a morning person. Right. And I absolutely follow that advice, but that's not a good advice for everybody because night people are at their most productive and creative and energetic later in the day. And if they try to do it first thing in the day, they're setting themselves up for failure. It's not that it's bad advice. It's just that it's not good advice for everyone. And so you have to say to yourself, not like, does this make sense on paper? Because on paper, it makes total sense, right? Right. Say to yourself, like, am I the kind of person who succeeds if I try to like do something important or intellectually tax- taxing or, or physically taxing early in the morning? If you're like, heck no. Uh, I can barely get to work on time, and I really don't really wake up until 10:30. Then, okay, no, going for a three-mile run first thing in the morning is not going to work for you. Um, so I think it, it, exactly as you say, it's really a question of saying what's true for me, and how do I how do I bring circumstances into line with what works for me, rather than trying to come up with like the best way or the right way or the most efficient way. Um, Cause it's so, you just can't really generalize.
1: But you know what? I do find that when people have a structure and I guess because I'm that person, right? So of course I'm going to be very much, I'm going to resonate with this kind of uh, belief system is that it does like when I, when I exercise every day, it does eliminate that. I'm like, you know, Oh my God, I'm not, when am I going to exercise? How am I going to exercise? No. All that, like, you know, neuroses that go on. No. And also I'm Jewish. Maybe that's another part of it. Um, And, or, and, or it also does like there's, there are like things that research proves that when you do exercise first thing in the morning, and when you um, eat the same breakfast, and you do these certain things, it does give you more focus. There are benefits to sure if you do it, right? Right, Right?
2: But it's like, what's better, the exercise you do or the perfect exercise you never do because you can't get up that early? Absolutely. I mean, mean, and the thing is, the name of your podcast is Habits and Hustle. So clearly that's where you're coming from and that's where your audience is coming from. So maybe you don't really need to think about the people for whom habits are not enticing because they're not interested in this. And so you can really say for people who are are deeply interested in habits like you and me and so many other people let's take advantage of them because they're so freeing and they give us so much power and relieve us from so much stress and mental fatigue. But that's very different from saying like, well, they're universally good and everybody would be better off if they did it. Because the thing is like a rebel, I've spoken to so many rebels and they do better when they're like, you know, I exercise when I feel like it. And I, you know, I, I know a bunch of classes and I keep my yoga mat and my running shoes in my car. And like, some days I feel like going inside and some days I feel like skipping. And some days I feel like doing a really hard cardio workout. I'm like, that wouldn't work for me. I need to have like a plan. I need to have a schedule, but okay, we can do it differently. Like that's fine. We can both get regular exercise, but we don't have to convince each other to try it a different way. Cause I think a lot of times people do waste a lot of energy just sort of like talking about like making a, like making an intellectual argument about what's best. Yeah. What's best is what works for a particular person. It doesn't really matter what's best for like, Eighty-seven point six percent of the population, right? Because if you're the other part, you want to know what's going to work for you. I mean, and that's what cracks me up with the habit research. Whenever you yeah. read it, they're always like, "And then there's a small group of people who don't really see the form habits." And I'm like, "Yeah, well, what do you do about those people? Because they need to take blood pressure medication too. You can't right. just leave them. What's going on with those folks?" So anyway, so with the four tenants, it's not for everybody because because I saw these, and I'm sure you've experienced this too, these very distinct patterns and how people come to the idea of even the idea of habits, let alone how to form them. Um, and so that's what led me to the four tendencies. Cause I thought, well, everybody would feel the way I do, obviously. Right. You feel the way I do. Um, we agree. I don't a, does. That's a hundred percent true. And also another point that you made was because of
1: a podcast being called what it is, obviously the people listening, not, not as a, maybe not everybody, but are kind of are already interested and curious yes. about like habits and hustle. Yes. Right? So that yes. becomes like my lane.
2: Yeah, Um, no, and that's great because that's a big lane for most people. I think habits do, because in my framework, upholders, questioners, and obligers all tend to take advantage of habits. And even rebels sometimes take care of habits. So it's a very enticing, there's a big promise there. Um, But it's not everyone, which is fine because nothing's for everyone, you know, when it comes to, you know. Habits? (laughs) Or how to to get there? I, I mean, like, here's an example. So with habits, healthy habits. Um, one of the strategies, and so in, better than before, I have 21 strategies that we can use to make or break our habits. And some work for some people and not for others. And some are available to us at some times, but not at other times. So one of the strategies that works really well for some people and not at all for for others, and I'd be very curious to know which side of this you're on, Okay, um, is when you're facing a strong temptation, not a weak temptation, but a strong temptation. So for instance, I have an incredible sweet tooth. And I'm an abstainer. I use the strategy of abstaining. And that is with somebody like me, it's easier to have none it is to have a little bit. So I can have one thin, I can have no thin mint cookies or I can have like a sleeve of thin mint cookies. I can't have one thin mint cookie. I can't have half a dish of ice cream. But then there are people who are moderators and moderators do better when they have something sometimes. or they have a little bit and, you know, and they follow the 80-20 rule. And these are the people who are like, I just keep a bar of fine chocolate in my desk drawer and every day or two, I have one little square and that's all I need. Why don't you do the same thing? And I say, because I can't. It's easy for me to have none, but I can't have a little. It's too hard for me to have a little. And again, people will say, you are doing it wrong. So moderators tell an abstainer like me, you shouldn't demonize certain food. You shouldn't be so rigid. You should learn how to just like have a little, have a have a cookie now and then. And I say to moderators, why do you keep breaking your promises to yourself? Why don't you just go cold turkey? You're always finding these loopholes. Why don't you just like be done with it? And they're like, I don't want to. And so, yeah, and and often I think people will say, well, I should be a moderator or, you know, or I should be an abstainer. When in fact, it's like some people are abstainers and some people are moderators. If one way isn't working for you, maybe try the other way. I think a lot of people think that abstaining sounds really hard, but actually if you're really an abstainer in your heart, it's much easier to abstain than it is. I can't be moderate. It's too hard, but I can abstain. Like I don't, I eat a, like a crazy low carb diet. I abstain from so much. It doesn't take anything to your point about like the decision fatigue and kind of the friction yeah. that comes eh, it's so easy like oh i don't eat that stuff so there's no temptation
1: i couldn't agree with you more you know it's funny because i know the popular answer and being in the health and fitness space like i am uh people always ask you that and you're like oh yeah it's the 80 20 rule you know what yeah. I mean? just eat it a little bit so you don't deprive yourself but to me that's such that's such um Such a platitude, you know. Like it's like does it work. I mean, if
2: people say it, can it sounds good, but it works for some people. Though for some people, it's really important. It's really good, and I I think dieticians and nutritionists tend to be moderators. So that's why they're convinced it works because it works for them. But it doesn't work for me. I'm like you. I'm an abstainer.
1: I'm an abstainer. Absolutely, because I know I can't go to a buffet because I know as much as I
2: right. Yes, always order off the menu. Never order from the buffet.
1: That's my number one rule always order off the menu because I know myself to your point that I cannot just take a little bit. That's just not my personality type. And I, I set myself up for failure every time I think this time I can do it. And so I think that's, that's a really good point. So I, I, first of all, that The fact that like you're, you, put, you put kind of uh, not just clarity, but you put that out there like that, I think is very important because then people end up feeling really bad about themselves when they're not fitting into what the, what the general population or what they think yes. that they should be fitting into. Um, so let's talk about uh, two things. Let's first go over in your four tendencies, the four different types of people or personality types that people yeah. can fall into. And then we can go more into habits after that.
2: Yeah, because it tells you a lot about how to set yourself up for habits. So this is uh, my framework called The Four Tendencies, and it r- divides people into four categories, upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels, which we were talking about. And I'm going to briefly describe it, and most people know what they are, and a lot of people, and the characters on Game of Thrones, and you know, they're not hard to spot once you know them. But there is a quiz online. It's at quiz.gretchenrubin.com if people want to take like a quick free quiz. I think 2.8 million people have taken this free quiz now, so it's very easy. Um, So what The Four Tendencies looks at is how you respond to expectations. And we all face two kinds of expectations. Outer expectations, which is like a work deadline or a request from a friend. And then there are inner expectations, like my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution, my own desire to get back into meditation. So depending on how we respond to outer and inner expectations, that's what makes us an upholder, a questioner, an obliger, or a rebel. And you can see why this is really important with habits, because habits e- are either an outer expectation or an inner expectation. Um, so upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. They meet a work deadline. They keep a new Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what others expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is, discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They'll do something if they think it makes sense. So they resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. They always want the research. They always want the data. They always want want to know why. Um, And um, if something meets their inner standard, if they think, okay, this makes sense, they will do it no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will push back. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my first insight into this tendency when a friend said, I don't understand it. I know I'm happier when I exercise. And when I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. So why can't I go running now? Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she showed up no problem. But when she's trying to go on her own, she struggles. And the key thing for obligers to remember is that if they want to meet an inner expectation, they must create some form of outer accountability. Do mm-hmm. you want to read more? Join a book group. If you want to exercise more, take a class where they charge you, uh, work out with a friend who's going to be annoyed if you don't show up, take your dog for a run who's going to tear up the living room furniture if he doesn't get his exercise, raise money for a charity, think of your duty to your future self. There's a million ways to create outer accountability and obligers must have it. Um, So their motto is, you can count on me, and I'm (laughs) counting on you to count on me. And then finally, rebels, which we were talking about before. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they choose to do, anything they want to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't like to tell themselves what to do. Like, they won't say, well, I'm going to sign up for a 10 a.m. spin class on Saturday. Because they think I don't know what I'm gonna wanna do on Saturday. And just the idea that somebody's expecting me to show up bugs me. Um mm-hmm. so their motto is you can't make me, and neither can I. Right. Um oh. And the, the thing is your tendency, the obliger tendency, that is the biggest tendency for both men and women. You either are an obliger, you have many obligers in your life, big, big tendency. The smallest tendency is rebel. So it's conspicuous tendency, but it's that is the smallest tendency. Yeah.
1: What's the percentage of obligers of, of, of the population? It's like I know 41%
2: it's or something.
1: Wow. 41%. And then you can have these, you can also like be combinations, right? Cause like I said, I feel like some of it, I agreed with the rebel. Like I don't like, I don't, I don't like authority really. I don't like when people tell me what to do, but yet if some, if I do have an expectation or someone has an expectation of me, I will, I will always do it. Um, so when, do, when is it actually, how often are there a lot of like hybrids? Do people have hybrids?
2: <laughs> I think that people are really solidly within a tendency. Um, okay. They really are in one tendency. But as you point out, each of the tendencies overlaps with two tendencies because mm-hmm. it is something in common. So like, let's say you're an obliger. Say, okay, so obligers also have an affinity with upholders because they both readily meet outer expectations. So they mm-hmm. have that in common. But obligers also... Uh, are like rebels in that they don't meet inner expectations. And so in that sense, they have a deep affinity with rebels. So some obligers tip more to upholder. So like I have a podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, and my co-host is my sister, and she's an obliger who tips to upholder. But you may be an obliger who tips to rebel. And -hmm. that means the kind of the rebel side of you, is it kind of flavors your obligerness. You're an obliger, but you kind of are like a little bit more on that rebel end of things. And this is true with all four. So like I'm an upholder who tips to questioner, but I know I have a good friend who's an upholder who tips to obliger. And so it kind of, it gives a different flavor to the mm-hmm. tendencies, but I think people really are solidly within the tendencies.
1: Within one of the tendencies, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, when you think about it, no an I, and, and I, I think about what my husband would be and what my friends would be like, I think I think that's very true, right? Cause we, we have one dominant portion. Um, so then, of those four, so like then, how if I were to say, like, what's the when you're trying to form a habit, right? What is it? What do you need to have? Because mm-hmm. some, so like a an obliger who, like you were saying, needs that accountability, like yeah. myself. What is the mo? How does what's the easiest way or the best way to actually form a habit in that in in these tendencies or that tendency. Well, if you're,
2: so there's the 21 strategies of habit change, which some are kind of universal and some are better for different tendencies than the other. But if you're going to talk about the tendencies, absolutely for obliger, if they're trying to form habits, what they really need is outer accountability. And so a couple of things to keep in mind, if you're an obliger, who's trying to form accountability, because I imagine a lot of your listeners are in that situation, because I can imagine that they would be drawn to your subject. Um, <laughs> So you want to think about outer accountability, but you also want to recognize that obligers vary dramatically in what kind of accountability works for them. And so something that is an accountability measure just may not work for you, in which case you need to try something else. So, for instance, some obligers can feel obligated to their future selves. Gretchen right now doesn't want to do this, but future Gretchen will be just so disappointed. I have to do it for future Gretchen. Or maybe my duty to be a role model for someone else would work for me. Or maybe I pay for a class. But then I talked to an obliger who's like, oh, you know, I signed up for a class with a trainer. But then I realized, you know, if I don't go, he still gets paid and he gets the time back. So she wasn't going like to like to help him out. I was like, this is not working for you as an accountability measure. Um, Another thing that I would say for obligers is that typically sweethearts and spouses do not make good accountability partners for a very sweet reason. Um, Your your sweetheart is as close to you. You're like, you're as close to me as I am to me. And I would ignore me and I'm going to ignore you. And so often people will be very upset with an, ob- uh, an obliger. They might like a woman said to me for years, I've been telling my husband, he had to get his weight under control. He had to start exercising, he had to go to the doctor and he just ignored me. One day his boss is like, Hey, Bob, you got to get in shape. I want you to go to the doctor and drop 30 pounds. And like the next day he started and she's like, he doesn't care what I think. And I'm like, no, no, no. You're an inner expectation. The boss is an outer expectation. So he's hearing what the boss says. It has nothing to do with his love for you. It's just that in a way, his love for you is making, is meaning that that message isn't getting across. Some people can be accountable to their children. Um, I've heard of, it's important also for obligers to remember they often need to be accountable for things they want to do. Just the idea that you want to get a massage or you love to do yoga. If you're not doing it, you probably need outer accountability. And I heard of this hilarious, um, brilliant idea of these two sisters-in-law They both wanted to get back into yoga and they both love massage. So the way they set it up is if I do 30 days of yoga, you get a massage. If you do 30 days of yoga, I get a massage. So I have to do the yoga. So you get your massage because I'm not going to let my sister-in-law down. I would would let myself down. But I get the yoga and you get the massage. Win, 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 win. Um, So there's all these clever ways to set up outer accountability once you realize that that's what's necessary. Unfortunately, obligers often say things like, I need to put myself first, I need to draw boundaries, I need to take more time for self-care, I need to get motivated, I need to keep my promises to myself. Eh, no, you need outer accountability. That's the quick and easy solution. It works. All the other stuff, it's not really relevant. It's, 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 It's searching for an explanation for this pattern, which is, why do I keep my promises to other people, but I don't keep my promises to myself? The solution for that is outer accountability. Then obligers can achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve.
1: What's, what I like about this is you, it's, it's very simple, right? Like anybody, whoever you need to work with, I think especially when it comes to like, we obviously for professional and personal relationships because we tend to um, deal with people based on what we would do. Like we were yes. talking early, yes. right? Yes. Right. And yes. you can you get, you don't get very far that way. Right. But like that
2: is, it's, it's, it's so hard not to do that. It just comes very naturally. Hard. It's very hard. It's very, and it, that's why I think sometimes like a vocabulary can help because it kind of can draw an outline around behavior that otherwise you don't really see distinctly. And so you don't understand how people are different. Yeah. Cause you're like, I don't even understand what's going on here. But then once there's a word for it, you're like, oh, I get it. You're this, I'm that. You're an abundance lover. I'm a simplicity lover. That's why my desk is clean and your desk is full of piles and it doesn't, and you like it that way. It's like,
1: okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, you simplify it for people. It's like that, remember that book, The Five Love Languages? Oh, I love The Five Love Languages. Right. And it makes it like, it it kind of like simplifies things, right? So for people to kind of understand what, what box that that other person fits in to kind of communicate better. And it it actually does make a difference, right? Because people think and and our our brains are not all computed the same way.
2: Well, and what I like about, I mean, obviously I'm biased towards the four tendencies since I created it. But what I like about it is it kind of has, it tells you what to try, what to do next. I feel like a lot of personality frameworks are like, you're creative and innovative. And I'm like, okay, so what? Like the thing about the four tendencies is it's like, if you're a questioner, you need to look for the data, you need to look for the research, you have to find an authority you really trust and believe in And if you're having trouble sticking to a diet, it's probably because really in your heart of hearts, you haven't decided what you think is the most efficient, the most justified, the best possible research, science-based data. If you get clear in your head what that is, your action will follow. That's what I would say to a questioner. To an obliger, I'd be like, where's your accountability? Like, are you going to use this app? Are you going to use a nutritionist? Like, are you going to use a health coach? Are you going to make a deal with your sister-in-law? What are you going to do? Rebel, I'd be like, it's your identity. This is who you are. You love to cook fresh food. You love to go to farmers markets. You love fresh vegetables. You love to you love interesting cuisine and you're free. You're not trapped. You're not addicted to sugar and 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 pro- ultra processed foods. They don't control you with their fancy packages and their expensive campaigns because you make your own choices because you're free and you know what's right for you and your body. And people are like, "Yes, that's right. That is who I am. That is what that's what works for a rebel." A polder is like I think I'm going to quit sugar. And I just like the next day, I'm like, okay, I'm just, that's over.
1: Fine. You know
2: what? what
1: I love? I also think this would be a great uh, tool for people in the sales business, like people who do sales, right? Because yes. you can read your person so much quicker because again, that way you're not wasting a lot of like time yes. and the news dealing with your own, like, well, that's how I would do it. And this is how that yes. would do like, because you can, usually read somebody based on that and then tailor your sales approach really. So it's a great business tool in a way.
2: Well, because one of the ways this comes up is questioners feel like the more kind of arguments and data they provide, the more they will persuade people. But often people who aren't questioners get very overwhelmed and kind of annoyed by that. And so if you're a questioner and you feel yourself being like, you here's this, here's this. You're like, okay, maybe I need to back off because that person might this might not be working and it might actually be irritating them. Um, Whereas if you were, if you're talking to a question, you're like, oh, I'm going to just like, here's the consumer, you know, report and here's the this and here, you know, and give them all that research. Yeah, right. Exactly right.
1: You know you know what I think is great about your books and w- what you do. everything dovetails nicely together, right? It, it does. like it's at the end of, at the end of the day, it's all about like an overarching idea of being happy and being successful and happy. and, and like this is knowing your personality, you know how uh, what's important. Like basically, like I was reading I was um watching something on like success rules that you did. I don't know if it was an Oprah thing I watched or some other thing I was doing. And I found that to be, it's, it's, it's very, um, one of it's kind of common sense, but as my mom would say, common sense isn't very common, right? Oh, so, that's a
2: great line. I have not right? heard that. Yes. And it's that true. True. Yes.
1: Right. Like one of the first points was again, like to know yourself, right? Like, yeah, yeah duh. Cause we are, we're not all the same, but people need to be told th- these things. And the other one that you would say is do what you love. Right. And and then you gave this and then you kind of followed it up with, because people say, "Okay, do what I love." Okay, I love taking my dog for a walk. But what you did was you said um, a great, a great way to know what you love is to look at who you envy in the world. Yes, that was so smart because that's so true, right? Because you, I think you, we, we all aspire. We all have something, and envy is a very human nature quality, right? Like if yeah. we all, we all have it. So if people who say they don't have it, they're lying, right? But can you talk a little bit more about that? Because it's your experience with how what happened with you. And well, I'll let you you continue.
2: No, you're exactly right. I mean, envy is it's it's sort of an it's an unpleasant and kind of dark emotion. And we don't like to feel it. We don't like to acknowledge it. We often don't like to admit to it. As you say, it's sort of like it's very unattractive. Um, But it's a very helpful emotion. And it's really important to remember that in happiness, negative emotions are really, really important because they're like big flashing signals that something isn't right. So when you feel that unpleasant feeling of envy, it's it's full of information. Um, Because as you say, when we envy someone, it means they have something that we wish we had for ourselves. Because people can have things where I'm like, oh, that's great for you, but I don't, you know, it's great you're going on a six-month trip to Japan, but I don't want to go on a six-month trip, so I don't envy that. Um, And one of the ways I saw this in my own life was um, when I was a lawyer, I was clerking for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the Supreme Court, so I had this great law job, and I was reading my alumni magazine, you know, where they kind of update you on everything that people in your class have been doing. And um, I noticed that when I read about people who had interesting legal jobs, I felt a kind of mild interest. And when I read about people who had interesting writing jobs, I felt sick with envy. Um, Now, why did I feel that way? I wasn't on a writing path at all, but I noticed that it was like almost to the point of like not wanting to see it or feeling so uncomfortable, I wanted to turn away. Um, And that was that told me a lot about what I wanted for myself. Cause I didn't really want those interesting legal jobs. Um, yeah. I yeah, it was like, yeah, yeah, you can have it. Right. Um, but, the, but the writing jobs, those to me really attracted me. So, so thinking about whom you envy, and it can be really useful. And sometimes also we disguise envy with like anger, or resentment, or criticism. So like somebody in your office, like, like, oh my gosh, she's going off on another trip. Like, I don't know why she's traveling all the time. I mean, who's got the time and the energy for that? really what you're saying is gosh i wish i were going on all those really excellent trips and then you're then you can say to yourself maybe i need to plan a trip maybe right. i need to take the time and the energy and plan a trip because even if it's just like you know like a, a drive to another state um because maybe my this the 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 emotion that i'm feeling against this other person is really telling me about something that i haven't acknowledged to myself yet
1: and do you think like so? Th- that's you, you're. I think what uh, when I was uh, looking at that or one of your books, can they all blend together. Because I've read them all. I don't know which one came from yeah, which one. No, I but, have the same problem. <laughs> you know, like I'm like I said, from this one, that one was um, the Happiness Project, or that one. Uh, that that kind of like again dovetails into act the way you want to feel, right? Because yeah. sometimes we don't act, we 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 act or we do things not the way we actually or we cover it, like. Like that trip right we're really kind of envious and we wish it was us right but we pretend we're angry about it you know yeah more from our guests but first a few words from our sponsors so have you guys started playing best fiends yet because if you haven't what are you waiting for it is so fun and it still engages your brain guys i just started a road trip with my family and i'm going to the most desolate places and i can still play the game because you know what it doesn't even require Wi-Fi and the best part is you can compete with your family and friends at any time I'm ready like at 705 on my I think on my levels there's so many levels constantly being added you're never bored so I'm telling you guys best Fiend has thousands of levels already with new levels events and characters added every month it's hours of fun right at your fingertips no matter where you are and you can even play offline with over 100 million downloads and tons of five-star reviews best fiends is a must play download best fiends free on the apple app store or google play that's friends without the r best fiends
2: yeah, well this is a really fascinating psychological phenomenon. We can really kind of manipulate ourselves to a very uncanny degree by using it. So, yeah, the idea is that you act the way you wish you felt because we we think that we act because of the way we feel. So, I feel like, okay, because I'm angry, that must be why I'm throwing things and yelling. But actually in the brain, it's more like, oh, there's all this yelling and throwing stuff around happening. We must be feeling really angry. Like, let's let's like bump up the emotion. And so we can take control of this by acting the way that we wish we felt. So like if you feel sluggish, act energetic, like move more quickly, speak with more energy and you'll make yourself feel more energetic. Or if you're feeling really kind of shy and reserved, act friendly, like really pump it up and try to act. Because the thing is, it's very hard for us to consciously change our mental state, but it's very easy for us to consciously change our actions in the world. And so, you know, if you or feeling resentful against to someone, maybe try to voice your gratitude for that person. And kind of by putting yourself through that motion, or if you're feeling angry, you might act in an affectionate way, and that's going to help you feel affectionate. So sometimes people wait to feel loving to give a kiss, but it's actually that giving a kiss is going to make you feel loving. And this is something that it's a very easy way to intervene in our mental state by just like controlling what we do with our bodies. Now, how long do you think it takes to actually change that? Because Oh, right away. You think so? Like, yeah.
1: cause I, So if I, I think you said this and that one of your. I think you start giving your husband a kiss every morning and yeah. therefore or so, something like that, right? Yeah. And it, it, that eventually becomes your new normal or becomes yeah. second nature, right? Don't do you feel that everyone though, generally has a baseline to happiness and you can hmm. only move it so much or mm-hmm. what do you? Wh-
2: Yeah, well, that's there's a lot of uh, research into that. Um, And some people have argued that there's like a set point and people kind of drift up or drift down, but they always come back to a set point. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's more helpful to think about a set range um, Mm -hmm. because about research suggests that about 50 percent of happiness is genetically determined. And then 10 to 20 percent is something called life circumstances. So that's things like age, wealth, health, Mm -hmm. marital status, occupation, education, things like that then the rest is very much uh, influenced by our conscious thoughts and actions. And so I think, you you know, one person's range might be like four to seven, and somebody else's range might be seven to ten. And some people are born Tiggers, and some people are Eeyores, and we see that in the world. But so I think the question for all of us is, you know, given what is within my conscious control, can I make sure that I'm at the top of my range instead of at the bottom of my range? So maybe my top is a seven, and your top is a ten! But I still want to be no. a seven. Um, and uh, and that's what I can control. Now, can you change somebody? And, and I talk to many people who are kind of like naturally very ebullient types who have children who are who are like lower on the kind of happiness, natural se- stri- range, and right. they kind of want to change their children. And they're like, how do I just tell this kid to look on the right side and smile? And like, you're going to, I'm like, yeah, you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Some people are just, they're, they're wired <laughs> just differently you know? And so you kind of have to accept, you know, a person's nature. But I do think that, I mean, I certainly found for myself, and I think it's true for just about everyone, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in our ordinary lives without taking a lot of time, energy, or money where we really can move the needle and we really can help ourselves to become happier. So, And that's what I always talk about is like being happier Mm -hmm. because achieving happiness, it's like, what is that? It's like, I can't even hold that idea in my mind. It's like, what does that even mean? But happier, it's like, if you did this, would you be happier? It's like usually that's clear. Yeah, I'd be happier if I exercised almost every day. Yeah, I think I'd be happier. That's easy. Would yeah. I achieve happiness, I mean, who? I, what does that? What does that even mean? I don't know.
1: Well, I think that's true. I think also like anything else that you want to be better at, you got to practice, right? Yes. yes. Right. It's a yes. skill. Like if you want to be a good basketball player, you're going to play basketball. And so these are just these are just like ways and tools for people to work on, right? To yeah. Get their level a little bit up a, 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 or a couple notches up. Where were you, by the way, before you did all this stuff? Do you know what your happiness like level was, your
2: baseline? And where are you seven. now? It was a seven. You were a seven? You know, yeah, I was a seven. And, you know, and that's the thing. Okay. When they look at people all around the world in all kinds of circumstances, most people say they're either pretty happy or very happy. Most people are pretty happy. You know, people are resilient. People are pretty happy. Well. Um And I would say, you know, did all my happiness, did my happiness project and all my happiness research change kind of my, my, my inborn nature? No. But what it did is it changed my experience of my life because I have so much more like fun and friends and excitement and enthusiasm. And I have a lot less guilt and boredom and anger um, because I behave myself better. And, you know, I've just thought a lot more about my values and putting my values into the world. I've thought about the importance of growth and novelty. Like, I just know how to set myself up. Am I still the same person deep down? hundred percent. Like if I'm on the subway, like staring into space, <laughs> I'm the same person I was, you know, when I was seven, right. you know, um, but my experience of my life is a lot happier.
1: So what, after you finished the, the happiness project, you, did you continue
2: with lots of these things and, and oh, yeah. you did more and more and more and more Yes. More and more and more and more and more. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. I, I mean, it. I'm an upholder. So for me, it's like, what could be more fun than a new habit? But um, I recognize now that not everybody feels that way.
1: No, exactly. And then, uh, hold on a second, because you said, I, I was going to say this earlier, and then we talked about uh, the four tendencies, but where was it? I had like a little note to myself that I wanted to ask you. Oh, yes. Because you talked about how to form a habit, and you said something... Uh, Again, one of these books, I don't remember, uh, about clarity. It's very important that when you want to form a habit, that you have to have, there's different types of clarity. And I thought that I, I really liked that. And that's why I wrote it down to ask you. Because before you actually do this, you need to have like a precursor to it. And
2: yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's 21 strategies, as I said, to have I know. a change. And, and and this is one of them. Because some, the, some of the strategies are really obvious, like scheduling. It's like, okay, we all get it. Monitoring. Okay, we all do it. Clarity is a little bit harder to see. And clarity is just the idea that we want to be really clear about what we're asking of ourselves and why. Um, because if I say to myself something like, I really just want to appreciate every day more. It's like, what is that? Like, what does that even okay. look like? What does that mean? What am I aiming for? What do I mean by that? And so the more that we re- were like, or like, I want to eat healthfully. What does that mean? So I think it's like clarity is like, I am going to prepare a lunch and bring it into work every day instead of ordering from a takeout place. Or I am going to have three meals a day um, because I know that if I get too hungry, that's when I head to the vending machine. I'm going to have almonds for a snack instead of popcorn or whatever it would be for you. Different people would have different rules. Um, But the idea is clarity because the more you, you have identified what you're asking for yourself and why because also sometimes people get into the situation where they're just hand waving. It's like, Oh yeah, I totally, I'm going to hundred percent. I'm going to start. I I totally need to start exercising. No, they're not really. They're just saying that because they want you to get off their back. They don't want to, they don't want to argue about it. So they just say they will, they have no intention of doing it. Clarity is like, okay. You say you're going to exercise. When are you going to exercise? What's that going to look like? Do you have the right clothes? Do you need to join a gym? Like, uh, are you going to do this on YouTube? Uh, Are you going to sweat so you have to take a shower after? Maybe you don't sweat so you don't need to take a shower. Like, what does this look like? Um, Clarity means that you can't kind of um, make excuses to yourself uh, because it's just sort of this nice, vague concept. Uh, Clarity kind of forces action because it starts you down a road of like actual behavior change. You know what I find interesting that you
1: wrote the four tendencies after you wrote better than before and happiness project because I feel like that's like the, the crux knowing the no. personality.
2: No, you're exactly right. You're 100% right. And right. But the problem is I didn't invent it. I mean, I was the reason that I understood it was because I was seeing all of these weird patterns in habit formation. Like my friend on the track team. Like what is up with that? Or people would say to me Oh, I would say, because a habit question that I would often ask people to try to get to their thinking is I'd say, how do you feel about New Year's resolutions? And a good group of of people would always say exactly the same thing. They would say, I would keep a resolution when it made sense to me. I would not wait for January 1st because January 1st is an Mm. arbitrary date. And I was like, that never gave me a pause. Why is it that they're all saying exactly the same thing? Arbitrary, right? That was was tripping them up. And so it was really, it was only when I was deep, deep, deep into the habit research and understanding like, well, and also, okay, so with obligers, here's something that puzzled me, like, especially if you know the big five uh, personality. So one of the things that they look at is conscientiousness. This had always puzzled me because I'm highly conscientious. So I take those tests, I'm highly conscientious. And I know that about myself. And I get people who are not conscientious. Okay, fine. Some people don't want to be conscientious. What puzzled me was the people who were patchy. Sometimes they were 100% conscientious and then, and then other times they were 0% conscientious. To me, this didn't make sense. Why was it that sometimes a person would be, they clearly had the discipline, they clearly had the ability, they did it under certain circumstances, but then in other circumstances, they just seemed helpless to follow through. How do you explain that pattern? And that's what then obliged It was like, that makes perfect sense because it's the outer accountability that is the difference in those circumstances. So you're exactly right. I really wish I'd written the four tendencies first because it was set up better than before so much better, but I was like deep into better than before. And then I was like, okay, I got to write this book first before I can get to the four tendencies because like, well, and this book's half written.
1: Well, yeah, because it all made it. Cause like I said, everything, all your books actually dovetail, but really like, I think at the end of the day, it's about first knowing who you are knowing your yeah. personality and then everything else kind of like falls more into place. You know, yeah. I mean, that's why like, I was going to say to you, like, I was going to ask you a while ago, like, what's the first step of becoming better than before? But really, I, I can kind of figure it out. It's basically knowing your personality first.
2: Yeah, yeah. self-knowledge. Absolutely. Self-knowledge, right? Absolutely. Because otherwise, it's like, if you know if you're a morning person or a night person, that's really going to help you. If you know if you're an abstainer or a moderator, that's really going to help you. Here's one about work pace. Some people are marathoners, some people are sprinters. So, Marathoners are people who like to start early. They don't like a deadline. They like to work slowly and steadily. They feel like that's when they do their best work and their most creative work. Sprinters are people they like the the kind of the intensity and the adrenaline of the deadline. Uh, They do their best work like right up against it. Um, They like to work very intensely. If they start early, they kind of lose interest and waste time. They're not procrastinating because that's how they do their best work. They look back on their work with pride. They don't feel like they needed more time but they want to do it all at the end. And again, it's like a lot of times people will say, well, you're doing it wrong because you shouldn't do that. And it's like, well, right. it works for you and you're doing your best work. Like, unless it bothers me. I mean, maybe if we have to work together, that's a problem. But that's very different from me just saying to my, you know, to my 18 year old, you shouldn't write your paper in the last week. You should take three weeks. It's like, maybe not because maybe this person's a sprinter. Again, it's just, it's like set things set yourself up for success. Well, and all like...
1: Exactly. And then like, but then there are other things like your, isn't your last book is called out of order, inner calm, which is about like cluttering, which people, again, like it's funny because I'm surprised no one ever talked more about this just because it's something that you would think that the less, um, like the less clutter someone has, on, like how, how things appear on the outside is how it directly affects your, your inside, right? Yeah. But yet, like it came way after all of this stuff, right? Because to get peace, I feel, and get order and feel calmness. But maybe maybe now now as I think about it more, depending on the kind of person, it's all back to the personality types, right? You may well, not care about that stuff.
2: Well, the, the desire for outer order is, isn't particularly correlated with the tendencies, but I do think that the people are very different. Like my sister, Elizabeth, is clutter blind. And there are a small number of people who are clutterblind. They really just don't see it. They, they don't care. Like, I mean, I love to go over to my sister's house. She lives in Los Angeles. And whenever I can, I go over there and I clean her clutter because I just enjoy it and she lets me do it. I just begged her to let me FaceTime with her this weekend and let me help her clean up her home office. But, you know, you I mean, well, in between, like, she, like, if all things being equal, yeah, she likes it to be orderly. Does she actually care? No. And for years, I couldn't believe it when she said, I just don't care. Because I'm like, how can you not care? She just doesn't care. And other people just don't care. And so you could say, well, you would be happier. You'd be more effective. You'd be more productive. It would be better. It's like, or not. They don't care. And so it's a small group of people. But you can't say you should dedicate a lot of time and energy to this. You should make your bed every day because it's going to make you happier. Not necessarily. So it's like, if it works for you, it's a useful tool. There's no magic to making your bet. No, but I guess what I, was, I, what I was kind of more
1: getting at was that all of the, like I said, everything kind of like works towards a, a common goal of happiness. Yes, and, yes, yes, right? yes, yes. And 100%. I think, and I always do feel like when people have clutter, it does represent something that's going on internally in their, in their life. And, you know, if you do feel cleaner and more like calm and, ser- and serene, If you do get get that stuff out of the way, so that's why again, like I
2: feel like every time you, yeah. What I'm saying is, you feel that way. It's not that one feels that way. One can feel many different ways. You feel that way. I feel that way. Many people feel that way. Yes, (laughs) that's my point. I totally agree. But it (laughs) isn't. It isn't the universal truth of human nature. (gasps) I know. know. It bugs me. Like I can't go into my sister's house without starting to clear off her like kitchen Mm -hmm. counter, but.
1: I mean, that's how I would feel too. Are there certain jobs that people do better at when they are now getting back to the, te- like I said, we're going back and forth in the four yeah. tendencies. Are there certain jobs and people uh, that questioners do better at or re- rebels do better at? Like, is, like, in all of your research, did you find that, This, you know, these two careers are usually this kind of personality type or that kind of personality type.
2: Well, what I found is that just about any kind of career can be done by any of the tendencies and they would bring their own strengths and limitations to it. So you could imagine something like a journalist, you could be like, oh, questioner, right? But an obliger could be a great journalist, a rebel could be a great journalist, an upholder could be a great journalist. They might bring a different set of skills to it and a a great, you know, different set of limitations. And I will say that there do seem to be, there are circumstances that suit, suit them better. So if you're a questioner, you do not want to be in an environment where there's like strong corporate spirit and we have a we have a visionary leader and we're all here to execute on that vision. We work as a team because it's like, okay, but the fact that like we've always done it this way or that's what the team (laughs) thinks isn't good enough for me. So I want to get myself to a place where they really value my questioning nature, because if I I might be seen as not being a team player and that could count against me, whereas in another environment that could really benefit me. Now, rebels. I will say that rebels often do well in something like sales, where there tends to be kind of an atmosphere of like, "Look, whatever you got to do to make a sale, that's okay." You know, because where's an holder, is like, "Well, it's five minutes after the deadline. What are we gonna do?" Like, that's the rule. But a rebel's like, "Oh, come on, i oh, I can make a deal." Um, that could really yeah. suit them. Also, they tend to do well in things where there's a lot of variety, a lot of autonomy. So, like, I talked to a rebel who was like the manager of a restaurant chain. So every day she was driving to a different restaurant, talking to different people. She was on the road a lot of the time, so nobody really knew where she was. So she really thrived in that kind of environment mm-hmm. where there was like a lot of spontaneity. She could do what she wanted in any particular time. There was no one looking over her shoulder. On the other hand, there are rebels who are very attracted to areas of high regulation, like the military, the clergy, the police, and corporations with a lot of rules. This really puzzled me for a long time. Um, but rebels say some rebels really like to be in an environment where there's a lot of rules to push against. They feel like that kind of gives them their energy and their focus. So you do see rebels um, in these environments often, which was very surprising to me to find out. Here's another interesting thing about rebels. If you have a team, whether it's a founding team, like the two of us started this company, or it's even like a romantic pair. If one person is a rebel, almost always the other person is an obliger. That's overwhelmingly the pattern. Um, really? because. Obligers team up the best with all three tendencies. They're like the typo and they do best with rebels. Questioners and upholders often do not work well with rebels. um, So they, so rebels will tend to gravitate toward obligers and obligers kind of, they, they get something from the rebel tendency too. um, So it tends to be like a fruitful pairing.
1: Really? I was going to ask you about that. Like which one, like what pairs up the best together? What's your husband then if you're an upholder?
2: He's a questioner. And that's a, I mean, I'm biased, of course, but that's a really good pairing, I think, because one of the limitations of the upholder tendency is that we tend to too easily go along with things. It's like, you're asking me to do something. I can do that. I will do that. Like, I'm not even questioning, like, should I do that? I just like execute. That's not good. You know, we should stop and say, is this worth my time and energy? Like, why am I going to do this? You're, people are asking me to do stuff all the time. Why would I do it? So I will often say to my husband, you think I should do this? And he'll say to me, Why would you do that? And then I'm like, yeah, you're right. So even just being around him has helped me to kind of, my impulse is to just go ahead and do it. But he's taught me, wait, like a lot of times, if you don't do something, there are no consequences, so you don't have to do it. And then sometimes people ask you to do things that it's like, it's just not worth the time and the energy. Um, And then I think for for questioners, um, it's satisfying to be with upholders because questioners are so interdirected. You know, they are totally Mm -hmm. interdirected they respond well to the inner direction of upholders. And so I think my husband might be stressed out if he saw that I wasn't good at meeting my expectations for myself. Whereas it's like, we both exercise all the time. We both like, it doesn't bother him that like, I quit sugar. Cause he's like, well, if that's what you're going to do for yourself, then like, fine. You right. know, he, he, he And so, um, so I think that's a very strong pairing, but but as I say, obligers, they are the type of, they tend to pair up the most easily with all three. And they're the biggest tendency too. So you see obligers paired up with all three tendencies very commonly.
1: And it's not, it's, it's not possible to change your tendency, correct? Like you, usually you are what you are, right? You can yeah. have blends, but you can't really, that's, you can't, like a questioner can't become uh, an upholder or a uh,
2: Typically not. Um, what you do see is that people think that they've changed, but it's really circumstance like, oh, I used to be an obliger, but now I'm an upholder. But really it's just you've created so much outer accountability for everything in your life. It feels like you're you you know, you're like, I'm in a book group and I'm in a wine tape group and I'm in an exercise club. And you know, it's, you're like, okay, that's all outer accountability. Or you kind of misinterpret it. Like somebody said to me, well, I always thought I was a rebel in high school and college, but now I realize I was just doing what my friends expected me to do. So it looked like rubble from the outside, but it was really part of a peer peer pressure. Um, So, yeah, I think from occasionally and I've only seen this a handful of times, someone goes through a truly personality altering event, like a like a very serious brush with death or uh, a serious Mm -hmm. bout of addiction or they're taking medication, prescription medication that like significantly alters the way their personality comes out. And those folks and again, it's a small group of people, so I haven't really studied it they seem to just sort of break free from the framework altogether. It's not like they switch from one tendency into another tendency. It's almost like their behavior just like isn't matched into the tendencies at all in a way that I can perceive. And they just are kind of floating into another mm. you, know, uh, you know, dimension. Um, but as I say, that's very rare. I, I would say in my own life, I only know a handful of people where I would say, um, this person isn't the person that I that I once knew and I feel like they're not the tendency that they once were.
1: I'm curious, because you were in law, and I know you liked writing. Where was, Where did all of this other stuff, the like, psycholo- like all the psychological stuff, the human nature interests, the passion for that, did, was there something that happened before law school that you were just were just always curious about human nature that this became your area, or
2: what was? It's, kind of- it's funny that you say that because. Um, no, I think I've always been interested in human nature, and you know, the Happiness Project was like my fourth book, and so, but so I wrote a book called Power, Money, Fame, Sex: A User's Guide. I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill, a biography of John F. Kennedy, and like this, oh my weird, God. this weird book about prof- called Profane Ways, which is kind of like about property, um, but really they're all about human nature. And um, wait, and happiness, just, happiness Project was your fifth book? Yeah. So I was like the example of somebody who was an overnight sensation oh. after ten years of work. Yeah. Um, wow. so I, uh, but one of the things, that, one of my favorite things about myself is I, I often become intensely fascinated by mm. a subject and I'll just do gigantic amounts of research. And like, I just went through this huge thing about being obsessed with color, but this is all the way back. I was like obsessed with the, with Harriet Tubman when I was little. So this is something that I often experience. Um, and so I, but I think that once I started writing, that, that kind of universe of issues was what attracted me. But I remember, I, it's funny that you say that though, because I remember I finally was like, Oh, I understand the pattern. Like looking back at all this stuff I've done, it's human nature. And I was like, that's my subject, human nature. I was very excited that I'd like managed to put a work on it. And then I was talking to this person I know who's a very, very respected writer, nonfiction writer, you know, like big job and everything. And I said, yeah, my subject's human nature. She goes, that can't be your subject. That's too broad. And for like six months, I was like, oh, I guess I can't have human nature as my subject. I mean, who can pick it? And I'm like, what?
0: Yeah.
2: Like, what are you saying? She probably was just jealous and envious that I had taken dibs on it. Exactly. Um, Of course you can say that human nature is your subject. And of course, I did say that human nature is my subject. It's preposterous to say, oh, you can't take that as your subject. But I believed it for like six months. And that was an important lesson for me. Don't let somebody else tell you what your subject is. Of course- Know yourself.
1: Know yourself. So you just kind of always are that personality that you just, when you start something, you kind of like get so deep into it and you deep dive. And then one thing kind of led to another
2: where this became the evolution
1: of everything. Yeah,
2: Yeah, that's exactly. It was just like a natural outgrowth of something that I'd been doing for a long time. Yeah. So, what are you going to do next? What's your next book? My next book is go about, going to be about the body and the senses, and how to reach the mind through the body. So, it's about the the five uh, kind of you know what you would call kindergarten senses, but then also four additional senses, um, which I say are uh, symbol, pattern, people, and time. Which you know, I just decided that I know about proprioception and all that stuff, but uh, I I'm not interested in that. Yeah, uh, so it's about so it's it's about how to tap in, how to get to the mind, uh, and to and to like experience. Uh, Uh, more vividly kind of everyday life um, by trying to tap into the body. Um, And it's just so much fun. It's like the most fun. Every project that I do, I'm like, there will never be a project as fun as this one. This is the most interesting subject that I will ever write. It's all downhill from here. Um, And then I get to something else and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to read about vanilla all day. Like, let me tell you about ketchup. Crazy. (laughs) Oh, I love it.
1: Well, it's amazing because like you have so many bestsellers, like it's not even normal. Like people usually get one and they're like thrilled, you know what I mean? But you kind of hit it over and over again. Well, after your you know after ten years, I should say, right? Yeah. You're an overnight success after ten years, right? But what why do you think people were so captivated by the happiness project and it ta- it kind of like tapped into so many people? Do you think most people, because you earlier said you think most people are more more or less happy? Do you you really believe that? Because I would think the opposite for the reasons why this, this, your first book, well, your fifth book became so popular.
2: Well, you know, the thing about my book is that I didn't start from a place of deep sadness or sorrow or despair or destruction. I was just an ordinary person. uh, And I had a perfectly happy life. And one of the things that I thought, and I say this on the first page, is one of the things is I thought I didn't live up to it enough. I wasn't grateful enough. Mm. I didn't appreciate how happy I was. And then I didn't want to, I didn't want something to happen and think like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize how happy I was, you Mm -hmm. know, it happened. And so part of it was just trying to be more aware of my happiness. And it was also the idea that like, there are easy things to do. Again, as I said, there's low hanging fruit, things that don't take a lot of time, energy, or money that we can do to make our lives happier and richer. And, and, and it seems like such a shame not to do those things just because, you know, you haven't, it hasn't occurred to you. So I think what appealed to people about my book is it was very concrete. So I explained the reasons and the science, and I think that's kind of always fascinating to people. But it was also like, okay, a lot of times you'll read something and you'll be like, yeah, that's interesting, and I don't disagree, but I don't really understand like what that would mean for me or like how I would act on that in my own life. And so I think a lot of times what people found exciting about the book is they would get their own ideas. They would be like, oh, you're right, relationships are really important for all the reasons you say, and you're gonna do this, but I'm going to do this. You know, it kind of got them thinking about the things they could do. So a lot of it was they would do what I did um, because the stuff I did was pretty simple and straightforward. Or they would think of their own things, which was even more exciting. So part of what's fun for me is, like, I'm I'm in so much engagement with my listeners and readers. People are constantly giving me ideas and nuances and, like, you know, kind of tweaks. And it's great because I see all the things that people are doing Um, And all the kind of imaginative things they've come up with. So I think, I think that's what I, what it tapped into was sort of this idea of, um, you know, I want to be grateful for everything that I have, um, but I also kind of want to do more with it.
1: That's a great point, actually. Cause you were, you were, it wasn't like you were in search for happiness because you were deeply depressed. It was about how to elevate what you already had. And you kind of, because you kind of knew already. So then because and another thing I was going to just say was that, like you said, small little changes can make extravagant. You could be you can have huge extravagant change with little small tweaks all the yeah. time. Right. Yeah. So can you give people a little bit of like what can they what, give them some ideas of some small little tweaks that they can kind of yeah. do?
2: Um, Well, one thing is the one minute rule. This is anything you can do in less than a minute you do without delay. So you hang up your coat instead of throwing it over the chair or you print out a document and put it in the folder instead of just like, you know, leaving it uh, sitting on the desk. And what this does is it gets rid of that kind of scum of clutter on the surface of everyday life. And for a lot of people, this is just transformative. Um, Another thing that um, we do in our family, and this is a little bit different because usually the things that I suggest are things you don't need other people to cooperate uh, with because often they don't (laughs) want to cooperate. But one thing you can do is to really try to give warm greetings and farewells. And this is like, think about your dog. Your dog Mm -hmm. seems happy to see you. It's like when somebody comes or goes, really greet them. You know, in our house, we really try to stand up and come to the person, give them a kiss, give them a hug, really acknowledge the fact that they've come back or they're leaving. And this just dramatically increases kind of the tender, attentive feeling in a household because it's a very lonely feeling when you feel like nobody cares if I come or go. Um, And even people who are very loving, it's like if they just grunt as they're like, you know, looking at their phone when you walk in, it's like, it's it's not a great feeling and it's easy to take it for granted. And it's, but it's a very easy habit to change. Um, Another thing I would say is um, uh, to think about having fun. Um, a lot of adults are sort of like, well, there's fun for the whole family, but they don't really have fun for themselves. And we really do want to give ourselves healthy treats. Um, when we give more to ourselves, we can ask more from ourselves, but you don't want to give yourself an unhealthy treat, like a brownie or an impulse purchase or something or a glass of wine. Uh, cause you don't want to do something to make yourself feel better that in the end is just going to make you feel worse. Mm-hmm. But having a bunch of healthy treats, Like maybe it's doing a crossword puzzle. That's my husband's healthy treat. Or maybe it's watching an episode of The Office. That's my daughter's healthy treat. Um, I love perfume. So putting on perfume is a healthy treat for me. And it gives you that sense of being recharged. You know, like you're like the cell phone that needs to get plugged into the wall. And when we feel, when we give ourselves treats, we feel kind of energized and taken care of. But this is not a reward. It's not something that you deserve or that you have to earn. This is something that you get it just because you want it. Um, I know people, this was something that was new to me. A lot of people shop and then they abandon their cart. They just like the thing of like picking out what they would take. doesn't even matter how expensive it is because they're not going to buy it. They just have all the fun of putting it in the cart and then they they just click out. For some people, that's a healthy treat. Not for me, but I've heard from many people who just really love that or like researching a trip. I'm not going to take that trip, but I'm (laughs) going to research that trip. I'm like, okay, if it's fun for you. It's a healthy treat, um, and so those are some of the things I would say um, that you might think about to
1: get started. I, wa- I wanted to. Uh, I mean, I, I know I've taken up a lot of your yeah, time. I got
2: to go. I gotta go um, I, like two minutes,
1: two seconds. I'm gonna. I want to leave with just one thing because I think it's important for the time we're in right now, with everything, the pandemic and everything going on. People are very lonely right now, right? How do people who are lonely? That's like a baseline of how they feel. Um, practice happiness? What's a a good way to kind of start on that process?
2: Well, the thing about loneliness is it's a very, very important signal that you need more social connection. And so it's not a question to surmount the feeling of loneliness, but to really create the emotional connections that are going to help alleviate the loneliness. But ironically, research shows that people who are lonely tend to have a harder time connecting with other people and they tend to be like sort of more prickly and more uh, judgmental. So if you're feeling lonely, you might really have to kind of force yourself to get out there. And of course, it's hard when you're not, you can't do the normal things that you would be doing and kind of in the casual way that you'd be connecting with people. Um, but it's really important to take the time, even if you don't necessarily feel like it, like maybe your book group's getting together and you're like, I don't feel like another Zoom call. But really force yourself to do it because we do get an immediate mood boost by connecting with other people it's hard when it's, it's through these, you know, it's not in real life or, 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 you know, socially distanced or whatever. Um, But we really, if you are feeling lonely, you really do want to try everything that you can. Maybe you go to a park and so you're just around other people, you're six feet apart, but you still have that sense of like, just being part of a group or, you know, you, you, you're just trying to do, to do something that's going to allow you to engage with the world. Because it's the, one of the keys to happiness is relationships with other people. And we really need to put that at the forefront of everything that we do.
1: Yeah. I think it's I think it's probably the most important besides personality, yeah. knowing your personality, yeah. right? Yes. Um, well, you've been a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming oh, on. It was
2: so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much.
1: It was really fun to talk to you. How do people find you if they want to know more, take your quiz and get your books or well, all the you above? Can.
2: You can get everything. Everything is on my site, which is gretchenrubin.com. If you want to go straight to the quiz, which is free, it's quiz.gretchenrubin.com. If you want to listen to my podcast, it's called Happier with Gretchen Rubin, which is anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm on social media all over the place under the name Gretchen Rubin. And I love to hear from people in all different ways with like insights and questions and observations. So, you know, um, get in touch. If you want to find out more, just go to my website or contact me. Yeah. I love your podcast, too. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, it's so fun to talk to you. Thank you for having me.
1: It's so fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for being a guest. Thank
2: you.
0: Habits and hustle. Time to get it rolling. Stay up on the grind. Don't stop. Keep it going. Habits and hustle. From nothing into something. All Out. Hosted by Jennifer Cohen. Visionaries. Tune in. You can get to know them. Be inspired. This is your moment. Excuses. We ain't having that. The Habits and Hustle podcast. Powered by Habit Nest.